Managing your 401k is hard. Bloom isn't. See what you could be doing to make your 401k better by getting a free analysis at bloom401k.com slash fool. That's bloom with three O's, 401k.com slash fool. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best thing in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week, senior analysts Jason Moser, David Kretzman, and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Howdy. Hey, how you doing? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll dig into the business of ESPN with best-selling author Jim Miller. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the two big numbers of the week, $100 million and $1 billion. In his annual letter to shareholders this week, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos revealed the company has 100 million members in its Prime service. And on Friday, Wells Fargo agreed to a $1 billion fine as punishment for home and auto loan abuses. Let's start with Amazon, Jason. This is the first time they've ever disclosed the number of people who are in the Prime service. Did this surprise you even a little bit? Well, I always figured at some point we would get an actual number from from Jeff Bezos. I think he was just looking for a meaningful number, and a hundred million seems kind of meaningful. So you know, nice <laughs> timing there. I mean, I think we've said it for a while, um, and, and Amazon is obviously a recommendation in many of our services. But the the prime membership is just the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for this company. I mean, that is what dictates this company's strategy. So now we have a good idea of how big that pot of gold is. Uh, in, in regard to the shareholder letter, I mean, I cannot recommend enough that everybody listening read it because he just every year it, it's always a good one. This one, uh, he's talking more about uh, high standards, and I and I actually called on every high school in the country. You have a free day here for teachers just to teach these high school students. One day, take that letter like and just that. It'd be a good class. I think it would stoke a lot of, of good discussions for kids that need to be thinking about high standards in, in these days. Uh, another thing that stood out to me in, in our colleague, Matty Argersinger, and I were talking about this yesterday, is the the bullet point India. right? Anytime you actually have a country as a bullet point letter, you know it's probably kind of important. And, and with India... And we think about how many Prime subscribers there are, we've got a lot more to come because India is just getting started. And that's a country with 1.3 billion people and a GDP per capita of only around $1,800 today. So, big opportunity. Yeah, and the, the e-commerce opportunity in India is really just heating up. You have Walmart trying to supposedly acquire Flipkart, which is, I guess, either the leading or second leading uh, e-commerce company in India. So, that'll be just a fascinating competitive battle uh, in the coming years. Something else that stuck out to me, besides Jeff Bezos talking about what he learned from handstands in the letter, a little teaser there to, to go read it if you haven't already, uh, just the, the inroads that Amazon is making into the connected home. They have the, the Echo devices, they have the Fire TV. They recently acquired Ring, which is a security doorbell camera. So, when you're looking at companies making inroads into the connected home, I think Amazon's at the top of the list. It will be interesting to see now that the cat is out of the bag, do they continue to update us on the prime number? And if so, how often? Because obviously, analysts will now be foaming at the mouth (laughs) trying to get at that data on a quarterly or even annual basis. But we'll see. I I could see Bezos saying, sorry, psych, that was a one-time That is a conference call that, that they just do not 
give a lot of information on. So I bet we'll hear them ask that question a lot. Probably won't get as many uh, answers, but but maybe you know more now than we did before. When they hit two hundred million, that's what we'll hear <laughs> right, again. Right. Am I the only one who thought that? Number was higher than it. I mean, I really, if you had asked me to guess, I wouldn't have guessed 100 million. I might so have been I, close. Like, we, I, I will say that at, we had our estimates in million dollar portfolio w- were at around 100 million. And I mean, that was published. So it actually took us by surprise that we were so close. <laughs> <laughs> nice job. Thank you. Let's move on to Wells Fargo. And Ron, look, $1 billion <laughs> for Wells Fargo. I know they've got the money, yeah. I know they can pay this fine. But I kind of think that the optics of this are actually the problem here for them. I think that's fair, and I think the optics have been bad for quite some time. The other big number is 570,000 clients that got car insurance but didn't need it. That's pretty bad. And, you know, Buffett's obviously a big shareholder of Wells Fargo and has been for quite some time. And, and he thinks of, about culture and leadership um, in, in very strong ways. Um, and and he's, he's maintained um, his trust to a certain extent, I think, in Wells Fargo. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the stock has, has taken a hit as a result, and I think it should have. As you mentioned, this billion dollars is not the going to be like any big deal. It's 0.4 percent of the company's market cap, so it can handle that. But it's it's more about a as a consumer, do you want to be a client of Wells Fargo, and then as an investor, do you have a desire to be a shareholder? I think in a lot of cases, the answer is no. Yeah, I think generally speaking, the answer is no. I think that the the one thing that Wells Fargo has really working in its favor, I mean, beyond just leading the mortgage market, right? Because it's very easy to own that mortgage and then offer all sorts of free banking services to go with it. Uh, it's just that once you get a banking relationship established, it just is it's sticky. It's nobody wants to take the time to like get yourself out of it and go open another banking account and make sure that all of your bills are being paid from the right account. It's, it's, it's a hassle. So, I mean, they, they they will, I think, benefit from that probably five years from now. We'll look back and think, eh, it wasn't that big of a deal after all. But I tend to not like investing in companies that have to pay fines this size. And honestly, this isn't the problem. This is just a symptom of what has been clearly a, a Bad culture for a long time. Well, and it's not the first fine, right? Like it would be one thing if this, like the first time this happened when this, when the the fake account story first broke, there was genuine surprise because of Wells Fargo, the reputation that the bank had. This is now no longer a surprise. This is now a pattern. Yeah, and what maybe is even more important than the fine is back in February, the Federal Reserve passed down a punishment that said Wells Fargo will not be allowed to be any bigger than it was at the end of last year until they prove that they've got their act together. So, as an investor, you've got to keep an eye on that, that you now have kind of a regulation that is constraining growth on purpose because of how you screwed up in the past. So, buyer beware. Wells Fargo has been a tremendous uh, performing investment for Berkshire Hathaway for a long, long time. I will be interested to see in the coming years as Warren and Charlie sort of ride off into the sunset if that status doesn't change at one point or another and they decide to maybe take those gains and move elsewhere. Well, hopefully, we're going to have Becky Quick from CNBC on the show next week as our guest in advance of the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. I'm assuming that there are going to be more than a couple <laughs> of questions that come up at that annual meeting about Wells Fargo. Netflix added nearly 7.5 million subscribers worldwide. That is just one of the highlights from the first quarter report that Netflix issued earlier in the week and shares up about 6%, David. 
yeah, pretty darn rootin' tootin' as far as a quarter goes. <laughs> uh, and, the, and remember, Netflix just raised prices at the end of last year, uh, and the company grew revenue over 40%. That's the fastest revenue has grown since the fourth quarter of 2011. So the company is actually accelerating its growth as it gets larger, which is uh, an incredible feat. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> You're I just, almost speechless. I'm almost <laughs> speechless because Netflix continues to do this quarter after quarter, um, to the point where the only thing I find surprising about Netflix results is the fact that management, for some reason, continues to feel the need to say, hey, we were surprised by this. <laughs> well, like, really? I, you were surprised I, by your own growth? I feel like the Quickster debacle gave Reed Hastings a lot. And I think a little dose of humility is one of the things he took away from it. And it's made him, I think, a better CEO and honestly, just more pleasant to listen to. So when you hear him say, hey, we were surprised too, I think there's a little dose of humility there. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's the standard, right? Internet TV, that's Netflix, and, and everybody really still is chasing after them. And the, the biggest question mark with Netflix, I think, clearly remains how much they're spending on content. Increasingly, they're spending more on money or on, uh, on marketing. They're spending about $8 billion on content this year. They're expecting to burn 3 to $4 billion in free cash flow this year alone. They have $4 billion in net debt. They said they're going to tap the, the debt market again. So, the ultimate question here is: At what point do those skyrocketing content costs plateau? Is it twelve billion? Is it fifteen billion? Is it fifty billion? We don't really know, and I don't know if management honestly knows at this point either. And that's kept idiots like me, or maybe I should say value investors like me, out of the stock for years to come. And I, <laughs> is it time to, for me to call, say, uncle, and say, "Yeah, I, I was wrong." I, clearly, the stock is telling me I was completely wrong, but I don't think the final chapter has been written yet. Well, Netflix has been a scary one to get behind, though, because of those metrics. David was just talking about, but it makes you wonder. And I mean, Amazon really, I think, is is similar in that regard. I mean, people have always griped about those profits uh, or lack thereof. I feel like you got to have a, a price to member metric or a price to subscriber. Well, and to go back to something David mentioned about Netflix recently raising prices, I mean, that's one other ripple effect of Amazon sharing this one hundred million dollar Prime number. Is now people can look at that and say, okay, well, what happens when they decide to bump up the price of Prime? which absolutely everyone who's a Prime member will pay. Yeah, they will. They will pay it, Chris. I demand it. (laughs) (laughs) You're just standing up with your wallet out saying, take my money. Listen, I've said more than one occasion that they could quadruple the price of Prime, and I pay happily. Hey, hey, The bears it out, okay? Speak for yourself there, Buster. (laughs) On Friday, shares of Mattel hit their lowest point in more than nine years after CEO Margot Georgiatis left the company after just over one year in charge. And let's be clear, Jason, she was not pushed. She jumped. (laughs) That tells me she got there, looked around, and decided this thing might be going to zero. Yeah, this thing is just the worst. I mean, losing that Disney deal, looking back now, I mean, that really, I think, was the beginning of the end for Mattel. And it's, it's amazing to think about this. I mean, this is a company that probably played a role in all of our childhoods at one point or another, and we're sitting here debating it now, 45, 50 years later. It's just amazing to think about, but we cannot, I, can't, I cannot overstate how much trouble this company is in. And honestly, they need a deal. They need a deal, and they need it now, because their balance sheet is becoming a big-time liability. And, and I think that uh, the, the dynamics of the toy market are not going to change back. I mean, that, that window just continues to get smaller as kids move on to devices and whatnot at younger ages. I just, Mattel is in a 
big, big bind here. Well, the the man that they named to uh, take over as CEO uh, in, in the past, he he sold a couple of his companies to Disney, and I think uh, him stepping in as CEO and just the the situation that Mattel is in, this really raises the likelihood that they'll sell out to Hasbro, Disney, some other company. But I think they're looking for an acquisition at this point. Jason, you mentioned in regards to Wells Fargo, like you don't want to be a shareholder of companies that are getting these types of fines. In terms of Mattel, I think it's also maybe a corollary of that is, uh, if you've got four CEOs in four <laughs> years, you might have a problem. That's a good observation. Coming up, we've got three stocks and three new flavors of M&Ms. You decide which one you like better. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Thanks to Bloom for supporting this week's episode of Motley Fool Money. Do you have a 401k? Do you remember how frustrating it was deciding what to invest in without any professional help? Well, now there's a better way to grow your 401k. That's with Bloom. Bloom with three O's. Bloom is a simple, smart, and affordable way to grow your 401k. Go online to bloom401k.com fool and simply connect your existing 401k plan in a few easy steps. Then sit back and relax while Bloom performs an unbiased analysis of the funds in your account and chooses the best mix to meet your goals while minimizing hidden investment fees. Getting your investments right does not have to be hard, painful, or time-consuming. Bloom only takes five minutes, and then your retirement is set until you cancel. And they link to your existing 401k so you don't have to move your money. Bloom is so simple. Here's the thing. The hardest thing about Bloom is remembering that there are three O's in the name Bloom. So, go to bloom401k.com fool and enter the promo code fool for your first month free and see the difference that Bloom could make in your retirement. Oh, green back, green back dollar bill. Just a little piece of paper coated with chlorophyll. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, David Kretzman, and Ron Gross. You can catch Motley Fool Money every weekend on radio stations across America, and I'm happy to welcome a brand new affiliate in Spokane, Washington, K. XLY AM 100.7. Hello, Spokane. Intuitive <laughs> Surgical increased sales of its Da Vinci robotic surgical system in the first quarter, and consequently, shares of Intuitive Surgical increased about 7% this week, David. Yeah, it's all about this razor and blade model. Uh, their total revenue this quarter grew 25%. They sold 185 of those Da Vinci surgical systems, which is up from 133 a year ago. The number of procedures performed uh, on those systems increased 15%, and recurring revenue from instruments, accessories, and services now makes up 73% of Intuitive Surgical's overall revenue. The company's basically printing cash at this point. They're, they're generating about a billion dollars in free cash flow annually. They have no debt and two and a half billion dollars in cash on the balance sheet. So, very strong business model. And they're, they're trying to expand their systems to cover more uh, di different types of surgeries, just increase adoption of those systems in general. So, probably still a lot of growth to come. We should relabel this show, Stocks That Ron Missed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about accessories on a robotic surgical system, and all I can think is like, like maybe they bedazzle it, they just add a little bling or something nice. like that. Sure, yeah, little add-ons. Make it look a little better. Lower corporate taxes are helping a lot of companies, but Philip Morris International does not appear to be one of them this week. Shares of Philip Morris falling more than 15% after first quarter revenue came in lower than expected. What's going on? Mm, well, obviously, a secular decline in, in cigarettes is, is part of the problem, but uh, 
This was actually worse than expected. A 5.3% decline for the quarter in cigarette shipment volume with Japan, Russia, and Saudi Arabia actually being the culprits for the most part. Perhaps an even worse situation, though, is the new technologies that are coming out, which companies, including Philip Morris, are spending billions and billions on to replace cigarettes. Their ICOS device um, growth has significantly slowed. It was gangbusters um, in Japan, which was seen really as kind of a bellwether for how this perhaps could take off. Growth is slowing, um, so that causes investors to be quite worried if your main product is slowing and your your thoughts for the future um, has slowing growth as well. Um, stocks sold off pretty severely, um, pretty much the worst since they split from Altria back in, in 2008. So, we're going to have to see these billions of dollars pay off, otherwise these stocks are going to continue to be under pressure. I feel like this vaping thing is just quickly uh, you know, becoming such a, a such a bad move. I mean, because it, it seems like it's worse for you than smoking. And man, say what you will about cigarettes, but I don't recall those things exploding in your mouth. <laughs> you know, and like the vaping things can, and people are getting this popcorn lung. I mean, it's, Ugh, it's not good. Ugh. Whatever Skechers shared in its first quarter report was overwhelmed by the company's guidance for what's coming in the second quarter. Shares of the sneaker company falling 30% on Friday. 30%, David? How bad was this guidance? Uh, It hurts. Uh, I mean, for this latest quarter, revenue grew 17%, operating income increased 20%, and their global same-store sales actually grew 9.5%. And believe it or not, Skechers now has over 2,600 stores worldwide, and they're opening another 450 or so this year. So, the company's growing quickly. But yeah, like you said, Chris, the uh, the guidance for this upcoming quarter was weak. They're just guiding for 4 to 6% revenue growth, earnings to be flat or up 13%. So, Management is saying that their guidance for the year as a whole hasn't changed. They're saying it's just an issue of timing of distribution and orders moving from the second quarter to the third quarter. But the company's gone through this in the past, so I think uh, the market's a little skeptical. Do you feel like opening more stores is the answer? Like, I, I mean, in all seriousness, I feel like more and more, like you can buy your shoes online, obviously, have them shipped to you for free. I kind of look at JP Morgan as, as another company where it's, I guess they're going to be opening more branches here locally, which to me, yeah. is, is the answer more banking centers? I don't think so. <laughs> well, I, I go back to something that Ron said earlier this morning when we were sort of planning to this week's show, and just the idea that, look, I get that guidance wasn't great, and I get that the stock is selling off thirty percent. If the That's stock is selling off thirty percent, I, I want to see that the CEO has been arrested right. or something like that. <laughs> Unless a stock is irrationally exuberantly priced, no quarterly report. Unless there's fraud involved or some major thing, should wipe away a third of a company's value. Um, I haven't delved into this, but sometimes those types of sell-offs create opportunities for patient longer-term investors. Yeah, I think longer-term this could. Be an opportunity. Skechers has, in general, been a well-run uh, company. You have Robert Greenberg at, at the helm. He's been head of this company for 25 years or so. He owns majority of the company. Uh, the company's still producing strong free cash flow. Has over 600 million dollars in cash, no debt. So the company is okay. They'll probably be buying back a lot of stock this quarter with the stock lower, but uh, it's going to be volatile. That's for sure. Mars Chocolate is bringing back its M&M's limited edition voting campaign, asking consumers to vote for a new flavor. Kind of seems like a page out of the Mondelez Oreos uh, playbook. Uh, here are your options, guys: crunchy mint, 
crunchy raspberry or crunchy espresso. Apparently, they figured out that people like crunch in their M and M's. I don't know. I, I love M and M's. I don't think I'm voting for any of these, Ron. I, uh, yuck! But yeah. mint is okay, but definitely not raspberry. Jason? Yeah, I, I think I'd go espresso. But Me I too. mean, that was the first thing that came to mind was Oreos. Just don't don't go down that rabbit hole, guys. I'd Let, go with espresso. Let's go to our man behind the glass, Steve Brito. Steve. Any one of these three you want to vote for? Because the winner is going to be rolled out into sort of a longer campaign. I'm going strong to the hoop with mint. Really? <laughs> mint all the way. Can we all agree raspberry is just a bad move altogether? Absolutely. Nix yes. it. All right, guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. Coming up, we're going to talk Disney, ESPN, and the future of sports media with best-selling author Jim Miller. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. James Andrew Miller has written best-selling books about Hollywood, Saturday Night Live, and the United States Senate. He's also the creator of Origins, a podcast that explores the beginnings of creative endeavors. Season one focused on HBO's hit comedy, Curb Your Enthusiasm. But Miller is probably best known for writing the best-selling book, Those Guys Have All the Fun, Inside the World of ESPN. For a long time, ESPN was the goose laying golden eggs for its parent, the Walt Disney Company. But as the network plows money into an expensive new morning show, as well as its brand new streaming app, ESPN is at a bit of a crossroads. Earlier this week, I sat down with Jim at his hotel in Washington, D.C., and I asked him how I, as well as all other Disney shareholders, should feel about James Pitaro the new guy in charge of ESPN. You should feel like there's much stronger connection between Bristol, Connecticut, ESPN's headquarters, and Burbank. John Skipper, uh, I think he was a loyal employee to Bob Iger, but I think he was a bit of a rebel. I think there were certain things that Skipper um, disagreed with. Skipper and Iger kind of didn't agree on, and I think the biggest one there is the NFL. Um, I don't believe that ESPN has a $15.3 billion deal with the, with the NFL that's uh, coming up in a couple of years. I, I believe I'm on terra firma suggesting that Skipper wouldn't have just blindly said, okay, let's do that again. ESPN now has the fourth worst schedule, right? I mean, when we were growing up, every single team in the NFL had three great stars, at least two or three, like, Great players, marketable players, you know, they, there's just not enough great product at the NFL. And at the same time that there's not enough great product, they've expanded it. So Thursday Night Football, which I think is one of the worst inventions since Liquid Prell, I, I mean, it is just, it is the epitome of greed. And the NFL owners should be ashamed of themselves because not only is, that, is it deleterious to the schedule, but the recovery time for the players, the burgeoning rate of injuries. I mean, there's just, it's a big bowl of wrong. But at the same time, they've done it and they've gotten away with it. And there's Fox paying enormous amounts of money for it. Um, so I think what ESPN's saying is wait, we got Monday Night Football. We're paying $2 billion a year, technically $1.9 plus $100 million for the wild card when they get it. Like, and we got the fourth worst schedule. And that's for like 17 weeks of programming. Give me that 1.9 
and I'll do something else for 17 weeks. I may not get exactly the number, but here's the real key, which um, when I, I actually, not to brag, but I broke it in a story for Hollywood Reporter, ESPN is now has distribution agreements that are wholly independent of them having the NFL. So it used to be in, you know, in, in the late 90s and 2000s that they were able to garner those monthly subscription rates because they had the NFL. Now, they, they can actually get that money without having the NFL. Now, that's not to say that certain cable companies wouldn't grab pitchforks and start protesting. But in terms of the actual language, that's not there anymore. That's a big, big signal to them that they have you know, margin for error and they can be a little bit more creative. So to get back to your question, I'm sorry to be long-winded about this, Pataro is not going to take on Iger about that like the way Skipper would have. In terms of the rights that sports uh, have been able to command from television networks, do you see that? continuing to rise the way that it has because people have talked about and written about the sports media rights bubble and it still hasn't popped yet but at some point some network is just gonna completely pass it's one of the great paradoxes isn't it chris because uh it'd be like me saying when amazon hit 100 dollars a share now this thing's gotta i mean <laughs> this thing is how can this right. go any higher? How can this go? It's a hundred dollars a share, and they're not making any profit. And uh, you know, I of course listened to that and didn't put buy any Amazon for my kids' college fund. Thank you very much. But um, the truth is, there is this weird disconnect, which is that we keep on lamenting, and the networks complete uh, continue to lament the rising acquisition costs. But there it is. I mean, look at the last NBA deal. It's enough to make you a Bolshevik. How, how, how was ESPN able to pay that money and Turner? But at the same time, look at the NBA numbers. And not to mention the fact that, look, ESPN produces, has 8,760 hours a year to produce. So at some point, something like baseball's tonnage, it's just great because you just, like four games a week and three games a week and whatever, it's like you, you just have these live events, which, further distinguish yourself in the marketplace. Um, they've spent over $20 billion on college football in like, you know, in less than a decade. I mean, those big, that Big Ten deal was crazy. And Fox did too. And Turner spent a ton of money. And what CBS spent on NCAA and Pac-12 and everything else. So everybody says it's crazy, but at the same time, what was that joke at the end of Annie Hall that, you know, um, his cousin thinks he's a, uh, He's a, he's a chicken, and everybody says he's, he's crazy, right? Yeah, but we need the eggs. We need the eggs. <laughs> and so I, the question becomes, like I think the end of your question is kind of provocative, which is, is there going to be a network that's going to just say no moss? And uh, I think to a certain degree, CBS and NBC have decided that they're not going to just go blindly for everything, that they can't. Fox seems more willing to do that, um, although I think they're, debt threshold is changing um, but as long as that happens as long as long as you have all these bidders and by the way you have now Silicon Valley coming in Facebook starting to do it Amazon paid for Thursday night football so in a way it doesn't even matter 
just what the four or five competitors are saying. You got these other people that are driving the price up, you know? So uh, I'm not sure it stops. I'm curious, since you mentioned Bob Iger, uh, as you and I are sitting here um, earlier this week, Netflix reported their earnings, um, their stock continues to rise. And now Disney's market cap is somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 billion and Netflix has in relatively short order, haven't completely caught up to them, but their market cap is around 130 billion. To what extent, if any, do you think that matters to Bob Iger. To what extent, if any, do you think he's looking at Netflix and watching them creep up and views them as not just a threat, but maybe a primary threat? Well, I don't think he's doing it from an ego point of view, but I do think he has fully appreciated what streaming means to the audience. I think it's something it means to the customers. He wants to be in that business. He is trying to do things to move to that kind of world. He understands that it's here to stay. Um, I think some of his critics may have said, why didn't you see that earlier? But I think in fairness to Bob, he's arguably one of the great media executives of the past quarter century, um, what he's been able to do since Eisner left. Um, so no one can bat a thousand, no one can anticipate everything. But I think that he isn't going to just sit around with his arms folded and let Netflix ride off into the future, particularly given what we all know, which is that kind of formula, that kind of recipe in the marketplace is something that the customers, they've, they, they've already decided they're good with it. They like it. It's comfortable. I was on the treadmill this morning and on the menu in front of me, um, there was an option for Netflix. It's not just a, it's not just a, it's not just a TV, you know, where you you have a little button on your treadmill and you, you raise the channel, you can go lower. There was Netflix. I mean, that's the way it has seeped into our into the fabric of our daily life and the way that people are just used to binging and, you know, they, they love having it there. Look, they raised the, their prices like a dollar a month the other. Nobody noticed. Nobody cared. Like, are, you, are you kidding me? Who cares? So, you know, I don't know if... By the way, I don't know if Iger sits around fretting about market cap so much because, as you know much better than I, in the marketplace, the stock market, there are some crazy market cap stories that all of a sudden everybody goes, wait, why didn't I short that? The market cap was $300 million. you know? It's like, I mean, that's part of the legacy of the late 90s, right, and the crash around 2000. So I'm not sure if he pays that much attention to that, but he does pay attention to the business model. Pretty soon, the Supreme Court's going to issue a ruling on sports betting. If you're ESPN or Fox Sports, uh, what are you hoping for? Uh, what are you preparing for? It's like uh, renting a tux, and uh, you're looking at your closet, and you got the tux ready, you got the shirt pressed, and you're like, "Am I going to wear it or not?" I mean, there are certain companies that are, you know, already have it on, and they're like tying their bow tie just to push the metaphor a little bit more. I think that ESPN has had a somewhat tortured relationship with gambling. You know, it used to be that you couldn't even mention spreads. Then they started mentioning spreads. Scott Van Pelt himself was uh, on his show, was very adept at it. Every once in a while, I love it's so delicious where Al Michaels, late in the fourth quarter of a Monday Night Football game, there'll be a field goal. And say, yeah, a couple of people were interested in that. A couple <laughs> of people, like, because you saw the spread dissipating. Um, I think it's probably coming. 
I mean, not to be able to, I'm not trying to predict the Supreme Court, but I think that given what's happening in the rest of the world, and that's a topic that where I think there is some knowledge that we gain from the rest of the world and how they've been able to engineer this and put some safeguards on that are desperately needed. Um, you know, I think that a lot of companies now are, are preparing for it. And uh, it's going to be like the wild, wild west when it happens, man. There are plenty of people, and I am one of them, who um, at the end of the day, done with work, you know, kids are in bed, that sort of thing, want to relax. Um, I'll listen to one of your podcasts or flip through one of your books. What do you, you. What do you do for fun? What do you do to just kick back and relax? I'm trying to learn how to do that. Um, I'll admit. Are you, uh, not, are you one of those people who only needs four hours of sleep a night? I, I, I think that um, I'm not one of those people who only needs four hours of sleep a night. I'm one of those people who gets only four hours of sleep. <laughs> I, probably, um, I probably should. It's one of my goals to learn how to sleep more and learn how to unwind. Um, I have a tendency to, you know, work pretty late and um that's that's a that's a problem i don't uh, my biggest problem is i used to be able to read a lot um just stuff that i want to read and um i don't get as much time to do that um as as i'd like or as i used to my um, youngest child is unfortunately going off to college and i've, I've officially started the morning period <laughs> um and uh I'm not looking forward to it. I would say the only silver lining in a big dark cloud, to be selfish, is that um, you know I have a tendency to um, put my children's needs above my own, and I my schedule is revolves around them. So now with them out of the house, um, <laughs> no, uh, I you know I really want to be a smart architect about time management in a different way. Um, so. But uh, I love your, uh, I love the idea, this, this concept of relaxation, Chris. <laughs> it's a very interesting concept. I think uh, I want to get into that. You can check out Origins wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear more from Jim Miller, good news. We took the entire conversation I had with Jim and published it as a bonus episode in our Market Foolery podcast feed. So when you're done listening to Motley Fool Money, you can head over to Market Foolery and hear Jim's thoughts on Saturday Night Live including the one person that he believes could follow in Lorne Michaels' footsteps. But don't go just yet. Coming up, we'll give you a few stocks you can put on your watch list. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in the studio once again with Jason Moser, David Kretzman, and Ron Gross. Our email address is radio at fool.com. Question from Dimitri, who asks, One company that's come across my radar that intrigues me is a company called Boston Omaha. It's tiny compared to Berkshire Hathaway, and while it's been public for less than a year, it has already doubled in price. One of Warren Buffett's grandnephews is one of its CEOs, and the company seems to follow the Berkshire model pretty closely. Has Boston Omaha come across your radar at all? I wanted to get your take before 
I take the plunge. Ron, I'll be honest, I've never heard of Boston Omaha before, but it does seem like it may fall into the quote-unquote baby Berkshire category. Yeah, the, you got to be careful with that whole baby Berkshire thing, because sometimes people think any conglomerate can fall into the category of baby Berkshire, but I think it's more of a cultural uh, title than it is a business model one, um, where you have to kind of think like Warren Buffett, um, or you have to think like Tom Gaynor over at Markel. It's not just about a diverse set of businesses. Yeah, I think I, I agree with Ron. You want to be careful here, because people have been saying similar things about Sardar Baglari, of Baglari Holdings. Not that's, me. That stock has gone nowhere <laughs> over the past five years. And I think people are also saying similar things about Eddie Lampert when he took the, the helm at Sears. And that, I don't think that's gone so well. I'll have to check in on that story. But <laughs> you want to you wanna like the, the company for the sake of the company and not just the aspirations of you know following one key person or another. I was reading through the Markel shareholder letter recently. One of the things I love about those guys, they constantly refer to it as, quote, your company. Nice. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's just they're talking about your company. They, they really take a lot of pride in that. I don't know if we were helpful to Dimitri, but uh, but, <laughs> right. but in the broader scheme of things, what was the company we were talking about? <laughs> Boston Omaha, Boston Red Sox. Yeah, I love them. I mean, they're great. Off to a hot start. They are. Uh, before we get to the stocks on our radar, and of course, our man on the other side of the glass, Steve Brodo, is going to hit you guys with a question. Also, got to give a shout out to the the other guys on the other side of the glass this week: Clay Deckard and Ash Pomeroy visiting us. Love it us. when we have visitors, awesome. yes. gentlemen. Thanks so much for visiting Thanks and for hanging out with guys. us this week, guys. All right, Ron Gross. What's on your radar this week? Steve, I'm going to go with an oldie but a goodie. It's Home Depot, ticker symbol HD. Have you heard of it? I have. Okay. I have indeed. Obviously, the leader in the home improvement industry. Sorry, Lowe's. Uh, huge scale. Gives it a great competitive advantage. Returns on capital increased over each of the past five years, currently at 34%. Paid a dividend for 124 consecutive quarters. Increased that dividend for the last nine years. Just raised it 16%, 2.3% yield. Guidance is strong. Stock is um, very reasonably priced for a company that puts up results like Home Depot does. Steve, question about Home Depot? What do you think of their HDX branded products? I have not partaken of them um, myself, but I believe they are selling through very nicely. Jason Moser, what's on your radar this week? I'm going to go with a twofer, actually, because earnings season is in full swing here. Next week, uh, we have Facebook, ticker FB, and Twitter, ticker TWTR, uh, earnings coming out on the same day, Wednesday, April 25th. So, you get Twitter in the morning, Facebook in the afternoon. It's just very interesting to see how the narratives have changed on these two companies over the past year. Facebook, obviously, in crisis mode here uh, with, with the whole data concern. I mean, let's be clear, man. Everybody's going to keep lobbing up pictures of their sandwich that they just ate and whatnot. I think they're going to be all right. Uh, but, but really, Twitter has been pretty fascinating. A couple of upgrades this week, and, and I think uh, they've been along the, the lines of, of the message we've been communicating in Million Dollar Portfolio, and that this is a very powerful network that isn't going to get disrupted anytime soon. So I think Jack Dorsey has done a good job of really sort of patiently building out a business here that's starting to perform. Steve, question about either Facebook or Twitter. What is the likelihood that Facebook buys Twitter? I think that ship has sailed. Facebook tried to buy Twitter many, many moons ago before Twitter went public. I think at this point, uh, Facebook would have a very difficult time convincing regulators that that would be in the best interest of people. 
David Kretzman, what are you looking at this week? Well, uh, JMO cheated a little bit there. Ah. My, my stock is Facebook, ticker <laughs> FB. So, Steve, I hope you have some more questions on Facebook. But uh, I agree with JMO. I think the, the pessimism with any potential regulatory pushback is already priced in. Facebook is growing faster and more profitably than Alphabet, but trading at a lower valuation compared to Alphabet. The company is printing cash, about $17 billion in free cash flow a year and counting, almost $42 billion in net cash. I think the company is going to be fine. Any new regulations or a slap on the wrist, I don't think it's going to change the, the powerful business model that they have. Steve? Given what we've heard in the news recently with Facebook, do you have any concerns about your privacy uh, and anything you post on Facebook? I was actually one of the 87 million or so users that, that was impacted by this Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal, I guess. But no, I'm not personally concerned. I think if you're online, you should understand that that data is not yours necessarily. It's going to be shared if you're using a free platform. So I'm okay with it. But I'm a millennial. I can't so believe I people know? know my birth date and that I love pizza. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. This is tragic. Yeah, absolutely. Steve, you got one you want to add to your watch list? I think I'm going to go with Home Depot. Nice. All right, Ron Gross, Jason Moser, David Kretzman. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, thanks Chris. Guys. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our producer is Matt Greer. Our engineer is Steve Broido. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.